This podcast is a presentation of UCTV.TV, University of California Television. Like what you learn? Help others discover UCTV podcasts by leaving a comment or rating in iTunes. Hello, I'm Allison Moore. I'm Chief of Geriatrics, Gerontology, and Palliative Care here at UC San Diego. It's my privilege to introduce Dr. Dilip V. Geste today. Dr. Geste is the Senior Associate Dean for Healthy Aging and Senior Care, the Estelle and Edgar Levy Memorial Chair in Aging, the Director of the Sam and Rose Stein Institute for Research on Aging, and a Distinguished Professor of Psychiatry and Neurosciences at the University of California, San Diego. He is also the co-director of the UC San Diego IBM Center on Artificial Intelligence for Healthy Living. Dr. Jeste is a renowned scientist and thought leader in aging and psychiatry. His main areas of research include schizophrenia, neuropsychiatric interventions, and successful aging. Now some stats. In addition to being the principal investigator on numerous research and training grants, Dr. Jeste has published over 750 articles in peer-reviewed journals and more than 160 invited book chapters. He has published 14 books, including his most recent book entitled Wiser. Here, he describes evidence-based findings on the definition, measurement, and neurobiology of wisdom, as well as its relationship with aging and interventions to promote wisdom. He's also the past president of the American Psychiatric Association, the American Association for Geriatric Psychiatry, the West Coast College of Biological Psychiatry, and founding president of the International College of Geriatric Psychoneuropharmacology. Dr. Jeste is a member of the National Academy of Medicine and was a member of the National Institute for Mental Health Advisory Council and the NIH Council of Councils. He is past editor-in-chief of the American Journal of Geriatric Psychiatry and currently the editor-in-chief of the journal International Psychogeriatrics. Dr. Jeste has received many awards, including the National Institute of Mental Health's Merit Award, a commendation for dedicated science from the Veterans Affairs, the Asian Heritage Award for Excellence in Science, Technology, and Research, and awards from the Society of Biological Psychiatry, the American Psychiatric Association, the Institute of Living, the American College of International Physicians, the National Alliance on Mental Illness, the National Alliance for Research in Schizophrenia and Affective Disorders, the American College of Psychiatrists, International Psychogeriatric Association, as well as the universities of Pennsylvania, Pittsburgh, Cincinnati, Maryland, and Cornell. He's also received an honorary fellowship, the highest honor it bestows from the University of um, UK's Royal College of Psychiatrists, and an honorary professorship from the Universidad Peruana Gaetano Heredia in Lima, Peru. His work has been cited in Time, The Atlantic, The New York Times, The Washington Post, The Wall Street Journal, The London Times, Public Radio International, NPR, and numerous other national and international media outlets. On top of this, I'm gonna say superhuman and wildly impactful series of accomplishments Dilip, as many of us know him, has been a friend and colleague and mentor and teacher to countless others, including myself, as well as an inspiration to all of us 
in the science of healthy aging. Now on to Dr. Jeste to discuss wisdom, social connections and the pandemic. Thank you. Thank you, uh, Dr. Moore. Uh, thank you for a very kind introduction. And uh, thank you for allowing me to work with you for the past several years. Having you as the head of geriatric medicine at UCSD has been a great blessing. Um, you have helped UCSD geriatric medicine become one of the top centers in the country in provision of services in genetic medicine. So thank you for your friendship, collegiality. So I'm going to talk on uh, wisdom versus loneliness in the era of pandemics. I want to begin by thanking my colleagues, uh, trainees and staff who really do all this work. Uh, and so you can see a number of people, uh, some of whom you'll see today. Uh, again, Danielle is uh, the executive director here. And then for the faculty, I specifically want to mention Ellen Lee, Michael Thomas, Barton Palmer, Colin Depp, and Tanya Wynn. Then on the last year has been called the year of living dangerously. This really was a year of dangerous living as Time Magazine called it. Something like uh, 700,000 Americans have died so far from COVID and millions of people all over the world. However, I think the good news is that we probably are near the end of the tunnel. And I hope this continues. And 2021 will then be the first year of living wisely. The United Nations have called the coming decade, that is 2021 through 2030, as a decade for healthy aging. Because the United Nations has found out, along with the World Health Organization, that older people need special care and society is not doing enough. So by focusing on healthy aging during this decade will markedly improve not only the physical health, but also mental health, cognitive function, and overall social functioning of older people, which will be helpful to the younger generation too. So it's really exciting to see the beginning of this decade of healthy aging following a terrible year of living dangerously. So I'm going to begin with the, what is loneliness and social isolation. Then I will talk about wisdom and its relevance to aging and even evolution. Then I will present some data that suggests that loneliness and wisdom go in the opposite direction. So much so that I believe that for the epidemic and pandemic of loneliness, wisdom might be the best vaccine. So the question is then how can we enhance wisdom? And that will be the last part of my talk. Loneliness and social isolation. People often use these terms interchangeably. They are related, but they are not same. Loneliness, by definition, is subjective. Talks about how you feel. It is a feeling of distress because you are alone. You don't have as many social relationships as you would like to have, and that's why you feel lonely. You may be surrounded by people, and yet you may feel lonely. Social isolation, on the other hand, is objective. You can measure it. 
by counting the number of social relationships one has. Obviously, social isolation may lead to loneliness, but not necessarily. A person in a cave may not feel lonely, whereas one may feel lonely in a crowd. Why should we worry about loneliness? Because loneliness has become a grand challenge for the society. It has been called a silent killer. You know, we know about the COVID pandemic, but did you know that before COVID hit us, for over 20 years, we have been having a behavioral pandemic of loneliness and social isolation. In, as you'll see, the rates of suicide, opioid use have increased markedly. And part of the main, part of the reason is loneliness that underlies suicide and opioid use. Loneliness increases the odds of mortality by 30%. It is as dangerous to health as smoking 15 cigarettes a day and more dangerous than mild to moderate obesity. And look at this number. According to the US Agency for Healthcare Research and Quality, 162,000 Americans die per year from conditions related to loneliness. There is more than the number of deaths secondary to lung cancer or stroke. And this has been going on for the last 20 years. And it's not just a healthcare issue. It's also an issue that affects businesses and governments. In the UK and Japan, there are ministries of loneliness to take care of this problem. So why is loneliness so bad? Why does it increase mortality? Why does it cause so many diseases? Number of studies have shown that people who are lonely are at a very high risk of developing diseases like heart disease diabetes, obesity, major depression with suicides, opioid abuse, alcohol abuse, other substance abuse, anxiety disorders of different kinds, including generalized anxiety disorders, Alzheimer's disease and other dementia. So you'll see that loneliness is a major risk factor for a number of serious chronic and potentially fatal diseases. Let me just show you some slides on suicide and opioid abuse. So these are data from the CDC, Centers for Disease Control and Prevention. They reported that the rates of suicide in the US increased from 1999 through 2017 by 33%. And again, this is before COVID, during the COVID era, the rates have gone up even further. Opioid abuse, opioid-related deaths. Here, the increase has been even more substantial. In 1999, 8,000 Americans died from opioid-related deaths. By 2017, that number had increased to about 48,000. Last year, it reached 100,000. So you can see the enormity of this problem. The rates from opioid use have increased more than tenfold in the last 20 some years. As a result of this, the average lifespan in the US fell before COVID hit us. Obviously during the COVID year, it will fall further, but it fell 
two years in a row in 2016 and 17. This never happened since the 1950s. And what is the reason for this decline in lifespan? It is not some new form of cancer or new form of infection till then. It was loneliness and social isolation contributing to suicide, opioid abuse, as well as the deaths from these various other diseases combined to which loneliness is a major risk factor. So why does loneliness increase the risk of these diseases? Part of the reason is genetic. Loneliness is a personality trait. It's a personality trait like resilience, optimism, neuroticism, extroversion, and I will describe wisdom. Wisdom is also a trait. Most of these traits are about 50% inherited, which means that 50% are affected mainly by the environment and behavior. So there's a large study of GWAS, genome-wide association study done in UK, uh, included nearly half a million people. And they found that loneliness is associated with highly polygenic architecture of the genetic predisposition. Also importantly, what the researchers found was that the genes that predispose to loneliness also predispose to cardiovascular diseases, metabolic diseases like diabetes and obesity, psychiatric disorders like major depression and dementia. So part of the association between loneliness and mortality and these diseases is genetic, but only partly. Part of that is behavioral. You know, when somebody is lonely, that person is not likely to be active. They'll be sedentary. They won't eat well. They'll have unhealthy lifestyle, which will also add to obesity, diabetes, heart disease, and so on. What I described to you was this pandemic of loneliness and social isolation that has been affecting us for 20 years before the COVID hit us. But now I want to switch to something positive. And that positive is wisdom. Wisdom has been an ancient concept. It has been there in practically all the religions and philosophies. Sophia is a Greek goddess of wisdom. The word philosophy is derived from love of wisdom. And yet empirical research on wisdom has been very scarce until recently. That is because the hard sciences don't like what they think are fuzzy constructs that you cannot define and measure quickly. For example, the diseases, we can define and measure. We can measure the cancer cells in the blood. Some constructs are not like that. For example, consciousness. For centuries, hardcore scientists said that consciousness is not a scientific construct. It is a philosophical and psychological concept. Well, Today, we know the neurobiology of consciousness very well because the neuroscientists started paying attention to it in more recent years. Emotion, cognition, stress. It was only a few decades ago that stress was dismissed as only a psychological, philosophical concept. Today, we know how important stress is for biology. It affects in, and 
the risk of practically every single disease, it makes it worse. So there's no question today about the biological effects of stress. Resilience, again, it was dismissed for a long time by scientists. Today, we know the molecular biology of resilience. There are animal models of resilience. And I propose that wisdom is a similar construct. It has been ignored because people thought it is fuzzy. However, it is scientifically based. And the good news is that that is beginning to happen. Empirical research on wisdom started in mid 1970 in the Max Planck Institute in Berlin and University of Southern California in Los Angeles. There were very few papers in the first few years, one decade, but that number has been growing rapidly. In the last decade, there have been 2,000 papers that you can see on PubMed that have wisdom in their title are one of the keywords. And these are all papers that were published in peer-reviewed journal. So I'm talking about really very good science. However, most of this research is still being done mainly by gerontologists, psychologists, and sociologists, which is great. But I would also like neuroscientists and medical sciences to start doing research on wisdom. We are one of the few groups which represent neuroscience as well as healthcare sciences that are involved in wisdom. When I first started doing research on wisdom over 15 years ago, several of my colleagues told me that, you know, be careful when you tell people that you are doing research on wisdom, people will not take it seriously. They'll just dismiss it. Well, the world is changing. There is now increasing acceptance now of research on wisdom. So when we started, our first goal was to define wisdom. How do you define anything? By looking at the literature. The literature on wisdom started in literally the antiquity, the scriptures. Because as I said, wisdom has been described in practically all the religions and philosophies, beginning with the start of humanity. So we did a study of wisdom using mixed method qualitative quantitative research in one of the ancient Indian scriptures. There have been also similar studies in the Bible. The Bible has a number of books of wisdom, including the book of Job, for example. So that is the most ancient literature. And then comes the empirical literature. As I said, the empirical literature started around mid 1970. And the number of those papers has been growing. So we looked at all the papers published since the 1970s that had tried to define wisdom. We wanted to find out what were the common elements of that definition. Finally, we established an international panel of experts who had written on wisdom. And using a method called Delphi or Rand panel, we surveyed them for how they define wisdom. So we looked at wisdom in three very different ways, and we expected that we'll get very different definitions. We were very surprised to find that the conceptualization of wisdom was really similar. Conceptualization of wisdom in the ancient scripture is not much different from the way we define it today. And what is a conceptualization? Wisdom is a personality trait. As I said, it's a trait like 
loneliness, resilience, optimism, and so on. But chess trait has multiple components. The most important component is pro-social behaviors, empathy and compassion. Empathy means sharing somebody's emotions, compassion means acting on it and helping somebody else. Then comes emotional regulation, control over the emotion. You know, if you think about very young kids or teenagers, you can see how their emotions fluctuate hour to hour, minute to minute. And then you look at a wiser, older person who is calm, controlled. You can see the emotional regulation there. Self-reflection. You know, when something goes wrong, our tendency is to blame somebody or something. Instead of that, we should think about ourselves that we did something wrong and that we can do better. That is self-reflection. Accepting uncertainty and diversity. Accepting uncertainty in the sense, even though I may think I know something, I can't be too sure, I could be wrong. And also accepting diversity of perspective. I may have strong values, but I can accept the fact that somebody else may have different value system. That doesn't mean that one of us is dumb or evil. No, people have a right to have different perspective. At the same time, we cannot be sitting on the fence all the time. We have to be decisive when time calls for it. And then comes spirituality. Spirituality is somewhat controversial component in the sense not everybody agrees that it's a component of wisdom. Also, spirituality is different from religiosity. An atheist can be spiritual. Spirituality means belief and feeling connected with something or someone that you can't see or hear or perceive. Whether you call it spirit, consciousness, soul, or God, doesn't matter. So these are the components of wisdom that seem to be common to various definitions starting from ancient times. The fact that the basic concept of wisdom hasn't changed over centuries suggested to us that wisdom must be biologically based. Because if it is socially or culturally based, it would change. Obviously, there are social cultural influences on wisdom, but it is mainly biologically based. So where is it based? Of course, in the brain. Where in the brain? So we did a bunch of studies that looked at the literature, and we found out that two main regions of brain are involved in it prefrontal cortex and limbic striatum. And there are specific regions within these. For example, prefrontal cortex is a ventromedial, dorsolateral, and anterior cingulate. Also, insula is important. And in terms of striatum, ventral striatum and amygdala. The next question is, how do you measure wisdom? As I said, wisdom is a personality trait. There are scales for measuring traits. And the scales have a bunch of statements about behavior. And then you say, to what extent do you agree or disagree with that statement as it applies to you? For example, one statement here in, our, in the scale that we developed is, I remain calm under pressure. So here, we are measuring emotional regulation. When you are under pressure, you get stressed out. A wise person controls the emotions and can act rationally. Another question is, our statement is, I tend to postpone making major decisions as long as I can. So that shows lack of decisiveness. So we have two versions of the scale that Michael Thomas, my colleague, he's an expert in psychometry and skill development. He and I developed this San Diego wisdom scale or the Thomas Wisdom Index. 
It has two versions. The 28 item version is a longer one, and seven item version is a shorter one. It takes just a few minutes to complete. And I would strongly urge everybody to take that scale um, to find out your strengths and limitations. Uh, this scale has already been translated into several languages. The question here is, of course, the relationship to aging. A number of cross-sectional studies are reported that older people have more emotional regulation, more positivity, that is, they are more likely to favor positive emotion and memory, more empathy and compassion, more self-reflection, and they make better decisions that require experience compared to younger people. These are all components of wisdom. These are cross-sectional studies. And of course, there is a bias in cross-sectional studies called cohort bias. However, we just completed a longitudinal study in which we have followed people for up to 10 years. And that study supports the idea that wisdom seems to increase with aging up to a certain point. So one question is, how does wisdom increase with aging? How can anything get better that has anything to do with brain? Because we all know that the brain shrinks with age, we develop dementia. So how can anything get better? Well, research in the last 30 years has shown neuroplasticity with active aging. Many studies have shown that if you are active, if you are active physically, cognitively, socially, the brain continues to evolve. There's greater recruitment and more efficient utilization of the neuronal network in your brain. Not only that, but you develop new synapses and even new neurons in selected subcortical regions of the brain. And what about the emotional regulation and positivity? Studies have shown that amygdala becomes less active with negative emotional stimuli like regret, fear, and stress in older age. So what you see is biological explanation for improved wisdom with age. However, there's a caveat. One caveat is not everybody becomes wiser with age. There are some old people who are very unwise, some young people are very wise, but by and large seems to increase with age. And the other caveat is that this increase in wisdom will not continue forever. There comes a point when, when the cognitive decline takes over, the neurodegeneration takes over and people start developing dementia. The significance of wisdom extends beyond individual and it has importance for the whole society. There's something called grandmother hypothesis of wisdom. So in this slide, at the top you'll see a couple that the grandparents. And of course the grandma is more important than grandpa, just like mom is more important than dad because women are the ones who produce babies. The middle one is an adult daughter. So if the grandma helps adult daughter raise children, this adult daughter is happier, healthier, lives longer, and she produces more children than her mom did because she has time to do that because of grandma's help. So grandmother involvement in raising grandchildren helps increase the children's fertility level as well as well-being and longevity. My UCSD colleagues uh, like Ajit Varki and his group have shown the presence of something called grandparent genes. Variants of CD33 and APOE, if you have them, 
you not only you longer, but you have better functioning hearts and brains. That means you would be able to do a better job as grandparent. And it's not just transmission of traits for increasing fertility. Grandparents are important for transmission of social cognition and cultural values like cooperation to grandchildren. So the society needs grandchildren, or uh, the society needs grandparents to help the grandchildren as well as children. Numerous studies have shown that grandparents are necessary for appropriate growth of grandchildren. This is the last study in UK that included 1,500 secondary school students aged 11 to 16. The researchers found that greater grandparent involvement in the kid was associated with fewer emotional problems, more pro-social behavior like empathy, compassion, and fewer adjustment difficulties compared to kids in whose upbringing grandparents were not involved. And this is especially true among teenagers from single parent or state parent families. And this kind of intergenerational activity is actually useful for both the generation. There's a study called Experience Score. You can Google and you'll get more information about it. This was funded by the MacArthur Foundation nearly 20 years ago. What the researchers did was they took some older people over the age of 65 who had retired from their job. They divided them into two groups. One group was trained and asked to serve in public elementary school spending at least 15 hours a week for one full year. After one full year, the researchers found that the children who were helped by the grandparents, their grades improved and those kids were very happy. But importantly, the older people were helped too. Their mental health improved, physical health improved, biomarkers of stress and aging in their blood and urine improved, and the volume of hippocampus on brain MRI was larger in these volunteers at the end of the study compared to the control. Now, that doesn't mean the volume of hippocampus increased. What it means is that it did not shrink in as it did in the, in the controls. So what I showed you is that wisdom increases with aging with some caveats. And this increased wisdom in older people has evolutionary significance for grandchildren, children as a whole species. What does it have to do with loneliness? Wisdom and loneliness go in the opposite direction. We have published several studies of this kind. I just want to show you one study. This is a study we did in 2,800 people across the adult lifespan from the entire country using method called MTurk. And what you see on the horizontal x-axis is the score on wisdom scale. The more to the right means higher score. On the vertical y-axis, you see loneliness score. Again, higher up you go, more the loneliness. So what you see here, if you look at the lower right quadrant, people with high wisdom scores have low scores on loneliness and vice versa. And number of clinical studies have shown that, that loneliness is associated with worse physical and mental health, Whereas wisdom, especially compassion, are associated with better physical and mental health. We have several studies, like the one I showed you, 
Enemies are strong inverse correlation between loneliness and wisdom, including compassion. And we just had a longitudinal study accepted for publication in a major journal called Translation of Psychiatry, where we found that people who had higher level of wisdom at baseline, or those whose wisdom increased over the follow-up period, had lower loneliness and better well-being seven years later. And this is not just clinical. We found that even on EEG study. This was work done in collaboration with uh, my colleague Jyoti Mishra and her group. We found that loneliness was associated with greater activity in the temporoparietal junction in the presence of angry emotion, whereas wisdom was associated with greater activity in the same region, there is temporoparietal junction, but in the presence of happy emotion. So it is remarkable that you can see even differences in easy results with loneliness versus wisdom. And going further, microbiome. This is a study done by my colleague, uh, Tanya Wen in collaboration with uh, Rob Knight and the Center for Microbiome Innovation. Diversity of microbiome is thought to be useful for health. And what we found was the diversity was associated, greater diversity was associated with compassion and wisdom, whereas loneliness was associated with lower diversity. So there is strong evidence, clinical as well as biological, supporting the fact that loneliness and wisdom go in opposite direction, which suggests that increasing wisdom could reduce loneliness. So I've talked about possible increase in wisdom with aging. I want to show you one slide which looks at what happened to older versus younger people during the COVID psychologically. You know, we all remember that when the COVID started roughly in March of 2020, in the beginning, most of the news was about nursing home. They reported so many deaths in nursing home. And then also people, older people outside. There were very few deaths in younger people. And of course, older people were more likely to have severe physical complications, needing hospitalization, intubation, etc. And then the social distancing requirements came into play to stem the spread of viral. Those requirements became a bigger problem for older people. Because younger people, they have technology. They could use smartphones, they could use um, 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 you know, the various devices, social media, FaceTime, to connect with other older people. Many of them didn't have access to technology or didn't use the technology. So they had more problem than the younger one. So the expectation was that we'll see many more psychiatric problems in older people during the COVID, depression, anxiety, stress. What we found and others found was the exact opposite. This is a paper we published in JAMA that suggested that psychopathology was lower in older people and resilience was greater. Same thing with compassion and wisdom. There's a survey of 945 Americans that was done by Laura Carstensen at Stanford. And she found that aging was associated with higher frequency and intensity 
positive emotions and lower frequency and intensity of negative emotion. And very recent study of 5,000 Americans, prevalence of psychopathology was 15%. By psychopathology, I mean depression, anxiety, stress. 15% in adults over 65, compared to 75% in people between 18 and 24. So although everything else was stacked against them, older people did better than younger ones psychologically. Why? Because of wisdom, compassion, and resilience. So how can we increase this time? So as Dr. Moore mentioned, we just published a book called Wiser, the scientific roots of wisdom, compassion, and what makes us good. And the focus really is on how can we increase the wisdom? The question is, of course, can we really increase wisdom? The answer is yes. Why? Because wisdom is a trait, right? Like, as I said, loneliness, resilience, and so on. And most traits are only partly inherited, 50%, which means that 50% of our trait is affected by environment and behavior. We also saw that wisdom may increase with aging, experience, learning, but is reduced when there is specific brain trauma or specific brain disease. So wisdom is modifiable. At this time, most of the means of enhancing wisdom are based on psychosocial behavioral intervention. I'll talk about that in the next slide. But in future, I do believe that there will be biological intervention. We may have some chemicals, some medication that can improve components of wisdom. Biology, such as brain stimulation, could be helpful, and even technology. Instead of artificial intelligence, we could be using artificial wisdom. So are there evidence-based strategies for improving wisdom? We published, uh, Ellen Lee was the first author of this um, paper in JAMA Psychiatry last year. It was a meta-analysis of 57 randomized controlled trials published in peer-reviewed journals that tried to improve one of the components of wisdom. One was empathy, compassion, altruism. One was emotional regulation. One was spirituality. So different studies tried to improve these different components. And these were studies done in people with mental illnesses, people with physical illnesses, as well as people from the general population. Nearly half of this study reported significant enhancement of the specific component of wisdom with moderate to large effect size. Wow. That means really there is very good evidence that you can increase component of wisdom with appropriate intervention. Again, this doesn't happen in everybody, but in a number of people, it can happen. The interventions were predominantly psychosocial behavior. So some of them included components of cognitive behavior therapy or CBT. Some included meditation, mindfulness, some use technology. So various means in which you train people to increase their empathy, compassion, or emotional regulation, or spirituality. There's one study I want to show, which shows how these kinds of interventions can have effect, not just on individuals, but even on the society. This is a study done in Spain, study of 176 teenagers. We all know that bullying has been a problem forever, and cyberbullying has increased in the last couple of decades. This has become a major, major hazard. People, especially younger ones, teenagers, have committed suicides because of cyberbullying. How do we control it? So that is what this study tried to do. So they developed 
an intervention, which is a group intervention. There are 19 sessions, each for one hour. And it included role-playing, brainstorming, case study, guided discussion. And they had a control group that didn't receive this intervention. At the end of the study, they found that people who underwent cyber program 2.0 had greater empathy and reduced amount of bullying and cyber bullying compared to control condition. Wow. So you can have an intervention that focuses on improving empathy, compassion that can reduce bullying, at least in some people. So what can we do in everyday life? So we have, again, there's solid evidence to support that, that we can improve compassion. By the way, when I talk about compassion, it is not just compassion toward other people. It needs to be compassion toward ourselves also. Sometimes we see people who are very compassionate to others, but very harsh on themselves. That's not good. We need to be kind to ourselves too. So how can we improve compassion? One is gratitude journal. Before going to bed, write a couple of things that will make you feel grateful. Some strangers came and helped you. But you can also write other things where you help some strangers that made you feel happy. That can also be a part of the gratitude journal. And you don't need to write. You can talk about the things that you did or that you experienced to your friend or spouse or partner or colleague, whosoever. Volunteering. Volunteering is a major way of improving compassion. Volunteer. We can have a few hours a week to spend time say helping older people in a nursing home or children with autism spectrum disorders uh, or other disabled kids. So if you do that, that not only helps those people, which also makes you feel good about yourself. Then there's something called sense of common humanity. When somebody makes mistake or when you make mistake, the tendency is to blame that person. Instead of that, we should accept the fact that everybody can make mistakes. Everybody faces major challenges. And we should learn from them, of course. But let us move on. Self-kindness, as I said, is essential. Of course, there is self-reflection, which also means understanding one's limitation. Self-kindness does not mean narcissism. So clearly, there has to be a balance about self-kindness. And then mindfulness which means accepting the fact that you have undergone stasis, but you also accept the fact that you survived the stasis in the past and you will do that again. And that is really, I think, what happened during the COVID year, that younger people panic because they have never experienced stress like this in their lifetime. But older people said, oh, we have been through even worse things, like war uh, or drought or financial uh, economic depression, recession, housing crisis, so on and so forth. So they have been through a bunch of crises. They survived. And they said, we'll survive this one too. And they did. I mean, obviously, physically it was a problem, but psychologically, they did very well. So I'm mean, coming to the last uh, couple of slides. So I've been talking about wisdom, mainly in individuals, but really this is a societal issue. I began by talking about how things have 
become so much worse in the last 20 years that we are experiencing this pandemic of loneliness, social isolation, suicide, opioid-related deaths, bunch of other illnesses that the average lifespan fell before COVID hit us. We live in a highly stressed, polarized, angry, anxious, depressed world. You know, today, people don't just dislike each other, they hate each other. That's not useful for our own well-being. We need to control this. Good news is that this wisdom and compassion can be the antidote and vaccine. As I showed you, there are clinical biological data supporting wisdom and loneliness being in the opposite direction. We actually have just begun an intervention for compassion training that reduces loneliness. And uh, we got this grant from the Sanford, you see the Sanford Institute for uh, Empathy and Compassion, where we are looking at the effects of compassion training on loneliness and our preliminary data are very promising. So what should we do? I think we need to change our education system. Right now, we focus totally on hard skills. In starting from kindergarten, we focus on reading, writing, arithmetic. Of course, that is important, that must be done. But we need to go beyond that. In medical school, the entire focus is on how to be the best diagnostician and prescriber. Same thing with engineering school, law school. We should go beyond that. Let us not focus so much on hard skill. Let's also focus on the soft skill. Compassion, self-reflection, acceptance of different perspectives. You know, in sports, we reward only the champions, those who defeat everybody else. What about having a reward for sportsmanship? So we need to teach people what training and reward them for behaviors of this kind. We need that for changing the societal behavior. Luckily, I think these there are things that are beginning to happen. The international community campaign. For example, WHO has global network of age-friendly cities and communities. So here the focus is on not the structure of cities, but the function, so that older people will have more opportunity to learn, catch up, and leave the community. There's also something called compassionate community movement. It started in New Zealand. Now it is taking place in UK, and it's coming to US. We need to embrace these kinds of movements to change the society. And this is my last slide. I think if we do this thing, we can transform today's lonely, distressed, polarized world into a happier, healthier, and wider society. And I feel very optimistic. I said, the society has gone through tough times, has recovered, come out ahead. We will come out ahead, but we need to make a conscious, sustained effort in this direction. Thank you for your attention. Yeah. Thank you, Dalipa. A couple of questions. Um, is postponing major decisions considered more wise or less wise? That's an excellent question. So when I talked about decisiveness, it really doesn't talk about necessarily the time of making a decision. Because sometimes you have to make very quick decisions. When you're in a crisis, if there's an accident or people who are in war, I mean, there you have to make very quick on the spot decisions. Other than some decisions don't need to be made quickly. You should take your time, think about what is best for you, what is, what is best for others, give some thought, 
And how much do we know about the relationship between wisdom and social determinants of health? Again, this is a great question, uh, very timely question. Um, um, actually, social determinants of health, this is an area that is rapidly growing in importance. Um, social determinants have been known actually since time immemorial. However, it's only the last 20 years that actually people are focusing on that. And this year, actually, I find tremendous increase, partly because of things like structural racism that became prominent during the last year. Uh, but also people are beginning to realize the importance of things like poverty, education, even climate change, things like that. They affect health. There are studies that show that social connections have greater impact on health and longevity than smoking, drinking, sedentary behavior, obesity. And those are the risk factors we study. But what about social connections and other social determinants of health? The American Psychiatric Association, actually our president, the new president made uh, social determinants of health her presidential team. She appointed a task force on that. And I was honored to be appointed as the chair of the task force. So we are doing uh, quite a bit of work in that area. And again, those here in the audience, if you have some ideas, suggestions, they're most welcome. Please email me and let me know what uh, you think more we should be doing. So related to what interventions we now have available for um, enhancing wisdom, are they generally behavioral interventions or uh, sort of interactions with people interventions? Is that really where the science is now? Yeah, uh, the literature on interventions for loneliness is quite limited at this time. And I'm talking about randomized controlled trials. Um, and this is, again, an area that barely needs good research. Um, some studies suggest that just physical activity is useful. My guess is often the physical activity is accompanied by social activity. So social connection, there is no question that if there is social isolation, we should reduce the social isolation. However, just socialization itself is not, a, not necessarily a solution because it depends on the quality of socialization you are getting. Social media, for example, social media can be hurtful or, um, or helpful. So it is not just increasing the social connection, it is improving the quality of social connection that is important. And that definitely should be emphasized. And that can be done through, again, cognitive behavior therapy, as well as various other means. Thank you so much. Any last words of wisdom for us, Dr. Jeste? <laughs> Thank you. Uh, and uh, again, your own work, uh, Alison uh, really is very relevant. And also I'm delighted that we have School of Public Health, uh, which also is focusing on these uh, social determinants of health, uh, including loneliness, social isolation on the negative side and wisdom and compassion on the positive side. So thank you very much. Uh, again, I appreciate the audience who is uh, here uh, and uh, we hope to continue our work in this area. Thank you again. Sure you will. Thank you. You've been listening to a podcast by University of California Television. For more information about this program or UCTV, visit us online at uctv.tv.